Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. So we are at our fourth episode, looking at our fourth theme in the book of Numbers. And here we're going to look at how God uses the wilderness as a crucible to both test and purify the people of Israel. The the wilderness will become a place of Israel's spiritual maturity. As you read through the book of Numbers, it becomes very clear that God had taken the people out of Egypt, but there's still a lot of Egypt left in the people. In the book of Numbers, the community deteriorates quickly, and God responds just as quickly. The people grumble and complain about the food, about the water, about every single thing, and God hears these grumbles, he hears these complaints, and he moves against the people, and he shows no favoritism. We saw in our last episode how even Moses misses out on the promised land because he does not uphold God as holy. Through their constant doubting and complaining, this Exodus generation, this wilderness generation, forfeited the right to enjoy the covenant blessings. And in many ways, the key chapters in this book are Numbers 13 and 14. Because this is why, this is the ultimate reason, this is the last straw, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, that leads us to have to talk about Exodus generations and conquest generations. In Numbers 13 and 14, again, God is so wise. I know that's not groundbreaking news, but God is so wise. He knows the hearts of his people, that if they go into the promised land in their current state, they are going to become just as bad as the Canaanites. And so God leads Moses to send spies into the promised land. We read this story in Numbers 13 and 14. We know this story. They go in for 40 days. One tribe sends one spy. So we've got 12 spies in total. And they spy out the land and they come back. And, you know, they've just, oh my gosh, the land is amazing. It's truly a land of milk and honey. But also the people there are really big, really terrifying. We can't take it. And this reveals a heart of unbelief. And so the people say, we're not going. Now, Joshua and Caleb, no, we, can, we can trust God. God is with us. We can do this. They don't listen. They try actually to kill Joshua and Caleb. They, don't, they want to shut them up. And the people decide they're going back to Egypt. And God deals with their sin. And he says to Moses, you're not going into the land. You rejected my offer and you have gone too far. This generation will die out here in the wilderness and the children are going to get the inheritance because God's plan is going to be done. His will is going to be done. His purposes will be accomplished. We as individuals can miss out on enjoying that fulfillment, but God's plan will be done. God forgives, but there are consequences. And the consequences that the punishment fits the crime, right? They complain and say, oh, if we go into the promised land, right? It says, would that we had died in the wilderness, Oh, we wish that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. And so God says, I hear you. You are going to die in the wilderness. That's what you wanted. You said, oh, we would rather die in the wilderness than go into the promised land. Have it your way. You're going to die in the wilderness. And those children that you're so worried about getting taken by the Canaanites, I'm actually going to lead them in and give them what you have missed out on. This is how divine retribution works. God says to the people in Numbers 14, 28, what you have said in my hearing, 
I will do to you. The people's request to die in the wilderness is going to be granted. And they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And these 40 years are stained by conflict with God. As Moses is recounting the story to the conquest generation, the children of these people who died in the wilderness, at the end of the book, he says, the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And then in Deuteronomy 9, 7, Moses, still speaking to the conquest generation, says, remember and do not forget how you, now not these people, but their parents, you, the nation of Israel, you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. The wilderness became crucible. For the people of Israel, they failed the test. And therefore, the wilderness was negative. It was a place of chaos, hunger, and death. But testing by God does not have to be negative. And in fact, it is intended by God to not be destructive but to be redemptive. This idea of God testing his people is a big theme in the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and in Numbers in particular. God tested Adam and Eve. I mean, he put them in the Garden of Eden, but he also put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, don't eat that. It's a test. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? God, it seems, tested angels in 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul talks about the elect angels, the the angels that did not give in to temptation. We know that God tested Abraham. He gives Abraham the long-awaited son Isaac and then says, oh, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. We know that Joseph tests his brothers after Joseph has been sold into slavery but has risen up in Egypt to become second in command. He puts his brothers to the test to see if they've really changed or if they're still the same conniving, violent unreliable group they were when last he met them. And in fact, Moses looks back at the entire 40-year wilderness period and says it was a test of faith. Deuteronomy 8, 1 and 2, he says to the conquest generation, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, again, friends, God doesn't have to test us so that he can discover as if he doesn't know what's in our heart, but God tests us so that he could bring to light what is in our heart so that he and and you and I can begin to deal with what's in our heart. So according to Moses right here, the purpose of Yahweh testing Israel was to humble them so that they might learn to completely depend on God, to learn total dependence on him. The purpose of Yahweh's testing Israel in the wilderness was to humble them so that they might teach obedience to his commandments and that they might learn the true condition of their hearts. And this is a valuable, gracious act of God. And it's not just something that happens in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we hear about God testing his people as well. We also get some additional information in the New Testament about God testing the Israelites. We learned that the Israelites failed the test of the wilderness because, as we said, they got out of Egypt physically, but they never got out of Egypt spiritually. They carried Egypt with them in their hearts. Testing by Yahweh is a common experience of God's people. Jeremiah 11.20 says, O Lord of hosts, you judge righteously and you test the hearts and the minds. 1 Chronicles 29.17 says, 
David is praying. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. David actually wants God to test him. He says in Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, test me, and know my thoughts. Again, God does not need to discover what's in our hearts. We need to discover what's in our hearts. And so God tests us to, yes, teach us, but also to reveal some things that maybe we and the people around us, we haven't noticed, we haven't seen, but God sees it. And God knows, man, I want to bless this person, but if I bless them when they've got that in their heart, it's going to ruin them. So I'm going to test them, not because I hate them, but because I love them. And I'm going to reveal to them what's in their heart so they can drag it out into the light and together we can kill it. So this, this testing of God for both Israel and for us diagnoses the root of human motive and attitude. Like maybe the testing of God, you're obeying God and no one's noticing and you're getting really upset about no one noticing and that's a test. And what the test is revealing is that you're not actually serving God, you're serving yourself. You're serving so that others will think well of you That's not pleasing to the Lord. And now you have a chance to repent of that attitude and resume serving God. The testing of God not only diagnoses the root of human motive, but it prevents the holy name of Yahweh from being profaned. In Isaiah 48, God speaks of testing his people. He says, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God wants to put his name on us, but he is going to test us. He's going to purify us. He's going to pry the sin out of our hands sometimes so that we can accurately and honestly reflect the glory of God to the world around us. This testing of God it diagnoses the root It prevents the holy name of Yahweh from being profaned and exposes and condemns unbelief and rebellion. Again, I think a more helpful way to think about testing is not so much a a pass-fail school test kind of context, but rather a a medical exam that shows what's in our heart, right? We we, we feel achy and, and exhausted. We don't know what we've got, so we go in to get tested, and the test reveals the condition of our, you know, biological systems here. And That's the primary way that the Bible uses a test. But you can't fail a medical exam, but you can fail the testing of God. Because if what the test reveals is not that we're struggling with sin, but that we have a settled posture of unbelief and rebellion against God, the test will expose us and will condemn us. The testing by God also leaves humans without excuse before God. God's tests are perfectly designed, and they will leave us without excuse. As we see, like, yes, Lord, you are right. That was a sin I was treasuring in my heart. And thank you for bringing it out in the light. Now let's kill this thing together. Now the testing is to go from God to people. Humans are not to put God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put your Lord to the test. Don't do it. And what Moses is saying here is don't test God with your disobedience. Like don't see like, how much can we get away with before God brings the hammer down? How much grumbling and complaining can we do before we get in trouble? How much sin is God going to tolerate? That, that's testing God. And we are not to do that. But interestingly enough, God encourages us to test him with our obedience. In Malachi chapter 3, all the way at the other end of the Old Testament, the people are withholding the tithe from God. And God condemns them for this. And he sort of gives them a challenge. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. 
that there may be food in my house. And by doing so, now just a quick time out, economic conditions in those days were not good. The people did not trust God's promises. They weren't obeying God's commands, but they also didn't have a lot. And it became very easy from a human perspective to say, well, I know we're supposed to give, but I can't really afford to give. Maybe next year, God, better harvest and I'll give next year. And God says, no, tithe right now. And by so doing, put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So test God by your obedience. Do not test him with your disobedience. So those who test God out of unbelief and disobedience are making a huge mistake. They have, they're displaying that they have no regard for the ways of God and they were punished accordingly. Psalm 95, 9 through 11 says, when your fathers put me to the test and they put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, talking about the Exodus generation, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, God's kingdom purposes will be done, but we can forfeit our right to enjoy the blessings through unbelief and disobedience. So we want to test God with obedience. We want to flee from testing God by our disobedience. Because those who put God to the test from a position of trust and obedience are actually purifying their faith and strengthening their faith. I mean, for the Israelite to walk in, in the book of Malachi, and walk in and put the tithe in front of God and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to feed my family next week, but I've got to believe that you can come through for me. When God does, their faith will be purified. And the next time it will be a little bit easier to put that offering down and their faith will be stronger. And they'll be ready not only to do the same thing again, but to give more, to think, well, I mean, if there was no way God could provide when I gave 10%, I guess there's also no way for God to provide when I give 15, but let's just see what happens, right? Testing God from the perspective of obedience purifies and strengthens our faith. And again, this testing is not something that, that once Jesus came, God said, all right, no more tests. We're all good. Now, the testing continues in the New Testament. In fact, we learn in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that even Jesus was tested. It says, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And since we have that kind of high priest, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God tests individuals. He tests me and you with a view towards improving our faith and developing godly character traits. Like we see in James 1, 2 through 4. Count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, when you meet testings of God of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If we truly are trusting in Jesus, the test that we go through will develop in us steadfastness and steadfastness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What I think this is adding to our understanding is that if I have hope, but not hope that's steadfast, then it's worthless. If I have patience, but not patience that's steadfast, it's worthless. If I have joy, but not joy that's steadfast, it's worth. You see the point I'm making? That steadfastness is what allows us to bear the fruit that God wants for us to bear. Romans 5, 3-5 kind of makes the same point when he says, we rejoice in our sufferings 
Because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Right? God is going to develop godly character traits in us through testing, through suffering. Now, important for us to, to add here, God is testing us. God is not tempting us. Now, I'm going to briefly, ever so briefly, just kind of delve into the Greek here. The word that you'll see translated in the book of James, in James 1.3, when he talks about testing of your faith, and then in James 1.13, where it says God can't be tempted and he doesn't tempt anyone, it's actually the same Greek word. The word for testing and the word for tempting, same Greek word. Now, your English translators, if if you're reading the Bible in English, have changed the word they translated to, which is a legitimate choice. They're not trying to trick us to to show the difference between what's happening here. Because biblically speaking, testing is something that God does with a view towards improving, strengthening, purifying, blessing. But when God is there testing, Satan is there tempting. And Satan is tempting us to do evil, to grumble in our hearts. Let's just use a, a negative and a positive example. What was God doing in the wilderness with the Exodus generation? He was testing them. But what was Satan doing with the wilderness generation? He was tempting them. God was putting them through trials, and Satan was there tempting them as they walked through those trials, whispering in their ears, you can't trust God. God's holding out on you. God doesn't know what's best for you. You should be in charge. Stop following God. Satan's not trying to improve and strengthen their faith. He's trying to destroy their faith. That's the negative example. The positive example will be, think of Joseph. Joseph, a righteous man, speaking of the Joseph from the book of Genesis. And God is testing Joseph by allowing him to be sold into slavery, by allowing him to be accused of a crime he didn't commit, by allowing him to be forgotten and left in prison. He's testing Joseph, purifying his faith, strengthening his character. But as God is doing that, what is Satan doing? He's tempting Joseph. Man, God doesn't care about you. You're on your own, man. I mean, you got to just do whatever it takes to survive. Lie, cheat, steal, whatever. Then when Joseph's brothers show back up, God is testing Joseph. Are you going to be compassionate and merciful? Satan is tempting Joseph, no doubt whispering like, oh, now it's payback time. They sold you into slavery. Kill them. You can do it. They deserve it. They're, I mean, they were going to murder you. They're terrible people. Do it. But Joseph passed the test. He trusted God. His faith was strengthened. His character was developed. So friends, you will be tested. But there is no clear delineation between testing and tempting. In the same moment, God will be there testing you. But Satan will be there tempting you. And he will be tempting you towards his favorite things, unbelief, grumbling, complaining, and rebellion. He did it in the garden. He did it in the wilderness. He is trying to do it in our life. Don't listen. Listen to God. Trust him. Rely on him. Depend on him. And he will enable you to pass the test and bear fruit that brings him glory. So friend, next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to look at some lessons we can learn from the book of Numbers. But for now, take up and read. God bless.